The reading today is taken from Psalm 41, page 567 in your Pew Bibles. Psalm 41, a Psalm of David. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely, while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us turn to Psalm 41, if you have your Bible in front of you. Now this psalm that we just read is the last psalm in the first of five books of psalms. Now on the surface, as you listen to the psalm and read it, it seems pretty disjointed and unconnected. Let's see if this is the case. In verses 1 to 3, Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. The Hebrew word translated weak here includes the idea of being fragile, of helpless in body, mind and spirit. The weak is someone who is vulnerable and powerless, and this includes people who are poor financially. And then, blessed are those who have regard. To have regard is to give careful thought to a person's situation and condition, rather than just given token or disinterested help. You know, it is relatively easy to give of our money, our time, energy, even skills to someone in need to ease our conscience and to make ourselves feel good. But David calls them righteous who have regard for the weak and helpless. Caring for others who need help is a true measure of Christian discipleship. Spirituality, how we are before God and moral living, clean living, 
dissociated from helping others, from caring for others, is not the way of God. True worship of God ought to flow naturally into deep compassion and concern for others, whether it is within the family of believers or those who do not yet follow Jesus. That's not always easy. Only the Holy Spirit of God can empower us to be like Christ, who gives and gives and gives, not to enhance his reputation, not to earn merit with God or with others, but out of love and compassion for the physical, emotional and spiritual welfare of the needy person. The psalmist says that those who treat the helpless this way as God would treat them are blessed. To be blessed of God is to feel the joy and the satisfaction of experiencing God's presence, care and favour. Just like David, we are not shielded from earthly afflictions and woes and pain. We face the same challenges as everyone else and more on account of our obedience to God. Nonetheless, the Christian life is a blessed life. Nothing, nothing can supersede knowing this is where God wants you to be that you are doing the things God wants you to do and experiencing the certainty that God is deeply involved in your life. He's close to us in our trials and tribulations. He holds us, as the psalmist says, in the palms of his hands. And scripture assures the Christian that in God's sovereignty and in his love for us, you and me, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8:28. But then in verse 4, we read of David pleading to God to deliver him from his sin. David, at this time, is suffering from a very debilitating illness. We are not sure what. Uh, he has also fallen into sin, He's attacked by his enemies. He's betrayed by those closest to him. He prays to God for deliverance. Have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. David recognized that his sins, which were many, were actions and attitudes directed against God. He linked his sins with his physical illness. But he recognizes that, more importantly, he needs healing of his soul. He was spiritually ill. He made an honest confession of his sins to God. I have sinned against you. He did not give any excuses. He was genuinely remorseful. He did not attempt to qualify for his sins. None of this, I'm sorry, Lord, but he or she started this or shouldn't have done this or said that, I was tired, I was under pressure, and so on and so forth. The prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful beyond all measure. We are most creative and imaginative when giving so-called reasons for our sins. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, asks the question why Christians often seem to be more conformed to the world around it than to God. 
And he says this, it's a long quote, quote, Our first problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. W.S. Plumer said, We never see sin aright until we see it as against God. All sin is against God in this sense that his law that is broken, his authority that is despised, his government that is set at naught. God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented towards God. Victory is oriented towards self. I continue to quote. Our second problem is that we do not take some sins seriously. We have mentally categorized sins into that which is unacceptable and that which may be tolerated a bit. Unquote. So we gossip, speak ill of others, lose our patience, slander another's reputation because we don't consider them sin or regard them as justified sins or tiny sins. But scripture warns us that it is the little foxes that spoil the fine vines, Song of Solomon 2.15. It is the little sins that destroy us and our Christian weakness. David simply confesses his sins and asks God for mercy and grace. So should we when we fall into sin. Don't justify them. And then in verses 5 to 10, David pleads to God for deliverance from his enemies. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely whilst his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the words for me saying, a vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. Now the background to this is that David, King David, his own son Absalom, tried to overthrow him and become king. And the reference to the close friend, someone I trusted, refers to Ahithophel, David's most trusted advisor and right-hand man. Ahithophel conspired with Absalom to dethrone David. The references to those who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me are particularly poignant. In an ancient near-Christian context, if a man has shown hospitality by sharing meals with someone, they come under his protection and care. And sharing meals was a cultural example of having a close friendship. That's very much in the Chinese culture as well. And in the case of eating bread at the table of a superior, in this instance David as king, it amounted to a pledge of loyalty. And to eat at the king's table is to be given great honour, isn't it? So to turn against that benefactor is the height of disloyalty and treason. To double the cross, double cross a friend is a horrible, horrible treachery. 
and then to lift a hill against someone was used for a horse lifting up his hind legs or front legs with his hoof in preparation to strike at someone violently. It is therefore reprehensible that someone betrays another who trusted him and given him his goodwill and friendship only to kick him like a horse would kick his owner. David had many enemies, but none grieved him more than being betrayed by a family member and a close friend whom he protected and cared for. This caused him more sorrow and anguish than the illness which was debilitating him. But what is interesting about verse 9, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. What is interesting is that Jesus himself pointed to this verse as a fulfillment of scripture. So we read in John, Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 18 to 21. I, Jesus said, am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he has said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus later specifically pointed to Judas as his betrayer. Not that David was aware of all this when he wrote this, but verse 9 was the prophetic foreshadowing of events in the life of the coming Messiah. That is like a pole, when the sun shines on it, it casts a long shadow. But this prophecy is like a shadow in the future, pointing what is going to happen to David's descendant, Jesus Christ, the greater David. Let us understand something about Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament was written over a period of 1,500 years, and it contains over 300 references to the coming Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Many of these prophecies were totally beyond the human control of Jesus. For example, these prophecies predicted the Messiah's place of birth, time of birth, manner of birth, his betrayal, his manner of death, people's reaction to his suffering, piercing of his hands and feet, details of his burial, his resurrection from the dead, his rising from the dead on the third day. Some Old Testament prophecies were literally fulfilled in a direct sense that you can see, yes, this refers to the Messiah. Sometimes they are like shadows stretching on into the future, indicating what is going to happen in due course. So Psalm 41.9 illustrates how David's experience of suffering and betrayal pointed to the type of ordeal his much greater descendant Jesus Christ would experience. The fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 41.9 along with the hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah, was a confirmation of Jesus' identity and mission as the coming saviour of the world. The most important point in all this is this. Jesus' death, 
was not accidental. As the world would wish it to be portrayed, they say that Jesus was a political agitator. He didn't mean to die, but uh, he was put to death by his enemies. No, that is incorrect. Scripture says that Jesus knew what was going to happen. It was part of the divine plan. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him at any time. He could have stopped it. He did not. Why? Because Jesus had set his eyes, his face onto the cross. He knew that if he, if he did not die on the cross for our sins, there is no salvation for anyone. There's only one name under heaven, as Acts 4.12 says. There's only one name, one person who could save us from our sins. And this is what Jesus, although he knew how he was going to betray, who was going to betray him, he fulfilled God's plan for mankind. Jesus' death and resurrection is central to God the Father's plan for humanity. In verses 11 to 12, David shows his confidence in the Lord. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Verse 12, to be set in God's presence. What does this mean? mean? It means to enjoy God's favour and fellowship. This is what David sought above all else. David is a very flawed man. He made many disastrous errors of judgment. He committed some horrendous crimes and sins which God punished him for. Yet God said that David is a man after my own heart. David sought to follow God and his commandments with all his heart. Though, even though he failed, he loved God. David was confident that God would always allow him into his presence and to enjoy God's friendship. May we too seek the presence of God and his favour. May we, like David, put our relationship with God above everyone and everything else. Now, Psalm 14 seems to be disparate bits of outpouring of mixed emotions, despair in illness, pain over betrayal, remorse over his sins, concern for others, yet tempered with a confidence in God and rejoicing in God's presence. That's life, isn't it? Others let us down, we let them down. We lose hope in life sometimes, and yet as Christians we have a certain confidence in God. We do good, and yet we all too readily sin. We have inner conflicts of mind and soul, and yet we can have peace in Christ. In the vicissitudes of life, the up and down of life, in sickness and in health, in strength and in weakness, in plenty and in lack, what remains constant, the only thing that remains constant in our life is the goodness of God to us. God is faithful, trustworthy and gracious. And it is therefore fitting that the first book of 41 Psalms 
should end with an outburst of praise in verse 13. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. Now it is significant that David refers to God as the Lord. The Lord. God is given many names and titles in the Bible which are used to describe different aspects of his character and nature. For example, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Elyon, God Most High, El Olam, God the Everlasting, and so on and so forth. Uh, different names that uh, focuses on his holiness or on his strength or on his faithfulness. Yahweh, however, is God's unique and personal name. When Moses asked God at the burning bush that did not burn, what is your name? God revealed his personal name as Yahweh. The Israelites, however, considered God's personal name Yahweh too holy to be spoken by human lips. Whenever they needed to say Yahweh, the personal name of God, they used another word, Adonai, which means Lord. And this is the word used here. Praise be to the Lord. Now, what is important is that there are two main ideas associated with this name Yahweh, or Lord. The first is that he has no beginning. He is the creator of all things, and therefore he is in absolute control and in a sovereign power over the entire universe, both in the past and in the future. The second idea behind the name is that he never changes. Yahweh is eternal and everlasting. He is what he is and will always be what he is, unchanging in love, unchanging in goodness, holiness, power, faithfulness, unchanging in his disposition to one good for you. This everlasting God stretches from the eternal past to the eternal future beyond our deaths, yet remains unchanging in nature, character, and his disposition. Very unlike us, changeable from hour to hour. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Everything and everyone has a beginning and an end. All except God Almighty. Jesus declares in Revelations, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, uh, in the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first letter and Omega is the last the equivalent is the English alphabet. It begins with A and ends with Z. What is before A? What is after Z? Nothing. What is before Omega? What is after, sorry, what, what is before Alpha? And what is after Omega? Nothing. Jesus is saying that he is the beginning and end of all things. This is our everlasting God in whom we can trust. So David says, Amen and Amen. The Hebrew meaning of the word Amen carries with it the idea of faith. But not only that, 
it carries with it the idea of certainty and steadfastness. It is often used in psalms, prayers and blessings as, yes, this is true. Yes, I agree. So this is our God. Yes and yes. Amen and Amen. So let us go out rejoicing in God, our everlasting and unchanging sovereign God, our unchanging brother, friend and saviour. Amen.